Namaste and welcome to the Bharat Vartha Weekly. Thank you so much for joining us on this lovely Sunday morning. I'm Roshan Karyapa. I have with me Abhishek Paul and Nirav Kanodra to take you through the news and events of the week that was. Well, it's been a very eventful week. India has exported missiles to Armenia. That's the first of its kind. Then we have the Indian National Congress uh, president nomination uh, seating up. We have uh, Mr. Malikarjan Karge and Shashi Tharoor filing nomination. Also on the geopolitical front, Putin uh, annexed parts of uh, Ukraine and also I mean his speech was fairly interesting where he referenced multiple things like the 1857 revolution. In similar uh, vein, India also abstained on the UNSC res- resolution condemning Russia. And closer home, we had the launch of uh, the 5G services and also some good news on the Indian economy front as well. So we're going to cover a bit of an update on that. All of this and more on this week's Bharatwartha Weekly. Again, if you haven't already subscribed to us, do subscribe to us so you can get your content on a regular basis. Uh, also, rate and review us on all the podcast platforms that you listen to. Uh, it'll help more people discover our content. All right. As always, let's begin with the episode that we put out last week. This was a part of the Velina's talk series. It was with Trinuyan, who is a Southeast Asia policy analyst, actually. She's based in... Uh, Vietnam, I think. Nirav, uh, did you catch the episode? What are you looking forward to? So I am looking forward to it. I follow Trin on on Twitter and like uh, she's very insightful on uh, the whole. One is the Southeast Asian economies and like all of East Asian economies. And uh, second thing is uh, about the balancing role. Southeast Asia prospered a lot when U.S. and China trade was very high, right? And they were all kind of involved in the China supply chain. And all of that. And now they're kind of in a tough situation, either having to choose between the two or how do you delicately balance between the two? So uh, while I haven't caught the episode yet, but it should be very insightful. This is like a fantastic thing, kind of like the Vishwavartha, where you, on the Bharatvartha platform, we're talking about uh, rest of the world as well. So that should be a very interesting episode. So hopefully catch it soon. Yeah, likewise. I mean, uh, I just got back from travel and I'm yet to catch up on a few of these episodes. I've followed Thrin for a while as well. And I like the focus on geoeconomics, right? I mean, she tweets out a lot of hard numbers and really uh, very good, uh, uh, very good content, very good person to follow on Twitter as well. Do check her out. All right, moving on to the first piece of news. India has exported missiles to Armenia uh, in a significant move to boost uh, India's defense exports. Uh, The country has signed an export order for missiles, rockets, and ammunition to Armenia. These exports will help the Asian nation in its border conflict with Azerbaijan. Although the value has not been made public, the estimates say the equipment is worth around 2,000 crore rupees. Uh, The order includes the first-ever export of the indigenous Pinaka multi-barrel rocket launchers, uh, along with the anti-tank rockets, ammunition, and more. This deal adds to the target of rupees 35,000 crore worth of equipment to be sold abroad by 2025. Uh, Nirav, this is very promising stuff, right, on the defense exports uh, front? Yeah, so see, basically what this is, is India was the uh, second largest importer of defense equipment after Saudi Arabia, I think. And now what has happened is there's a renewed focus. So one is, step one was indigenization, that whatever you're importing, can you make it at home, make in India, make for India. But also, India has this opportunity because of its large scale and its large defense budget, that we can sell, especially to the global south. You have talks of like earlier uh, Brahmos missiles being sold to Vietnam. Now this is Armenia. As you mentioned, like Armenia recently had a conflict with Azerbaijan, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And there, 
Azerbaijan took over some disputed territory with a lot of uh, help of drones and a lot of Turkish military equipment, right? Both Armenia and Azerbaijan are ex-Soviet countries were getting most of the arms uh, from Russia. This is an opportunity. See, you've got from the earlier pre-Cold, in the Cold War era, you either bought arms from USSR or you bought arms from the US. And a lot of these are like, A, like quite expensive, B, you are at their mercy. So India can be like another player in this. China obviously is one. You have France, which has a very big defense industry. You have Israel. But now India gets in as well. And uh, these are countries which would want a neutral, non-aligned person who won't hold them to ransom at the last minute where they, they, you need spare parts. So in case of a conflict with Azerbaijan, uh, India may not want to, like, may not take like sides. So I think this is a good thing. Uh, second thing is, this is also validation of our military equipment that it is of a global standard it is at a very competitive price and uh, this allows economy of scope and economy of scale for better domestic manufacturing indigenization of technology right so i think on multiple fronts it's a very positive news it also kind of elevates india's standing as like country which other nations look out uh, look up to see in terms of economy we might be the fifth biggest but per capita, we are still a poor country. But we do have enough complexity in our economy that uh, we should be pulling our weight this way with geopolitics. I think this is one of the ways, not just to like make revenue out of it, but also build allies across the global south, right? So which probably helps India in its own conflicts versus India's neighbors, etc. So it's a positive news through and through. And hopefully, as in these have been sadly very small steps, but we work towards kind of getting to the level where, uh, as you mentioned, right, uh, 35,000 crore of defense exports by 2025, it's still a tough target, but uh, hopefully these are the steps in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think the signaling power of something like this uh, cannot be underestimated, right? I mean, from the first time, I mean, from being very import focused, we're we're actually looking at it, you know, from an export perspective, which is uh, which is really huge, I think. And 2,000 crores out of the 35,000 may, may seem like a tiny amount, but then it's definitely a step in the right direction. And we hope that, uh, you know, we'll see more of this uh, in the days and months to come, right? Well, in some political news, uh, Mr. Malikarjun Karge and Mr. Shashi Tharoor have filed nomination for the Indian National Congress president position. Earlier, Mr. Karge, Mr. Tharoor and KN Tripathi had earlier applied for nomination for the party president. However, Mr. Tripathi's application was rejected. So Mr. Tharoor and Karge will now face off in Congress's presidential polls. October 8th is the date for withdrawal of candidacy. If no one withdraws, then the voting process will take place. Abhishek, this is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, do you see like a new sort of a power dynamic in the Congress now? Yeah, so this whole uh, INC presidential polls situation has been very interesting over the past couple of weeks and has sort of taken away the headlines and spotlight away from Rahul Gandhi's Bharat Jodo Yatra that he is currently ongoing, right? Right now in the southern state. So initially, the big news topic out of this was the happenings in Rajasthan, right? Where... Uh, uh, Ashok Gehloth was initially supposed to be one of the people who is going to contest this 
election. Now, Ashok Gehloth uh, had assumed that he would be allowed to continue as the CM of Rajasthan as well as, you know, be Congress president if he won. But it seems the uh, Gandhi family quickly shot down that idea in the sense by making it clear that the one person, one post rule will be applicable for this post as well. So then what happened is we saw some dramatic events where a lot of the MLAs were resigning or threatening to resign who were Gehloth supporters, right? And then essentially the idea or the fear for them was that they thought that this is basically a way in which Ashok Gehlot is being pushed out of the state and Sachin Pilot would basically become the CM, which Ashok Gehlot and his supporters wanted to really avoid. So what happened is ultimately... Ashok Gehloth stepped out of the INC president's race, right? Congress president's race. But it kind of totally exposed the fissures in the Rajasthan state Congress, right? And the general problem with the high command versus a strong state leader. So that was one part. Uh, Mr. Tharoor, of course, has been quite vocal in wanting to contest this election. And he's primarily been the one who has been highlighted in the media. There was a blitz of uh, interviews the other day, right? With uh, all top news channels interviewing him, I think, on Thursday. At that time, it was Mr. Digvijay Singh who was supposed to be the one going against Shashi Tharoor. They even had a photo op saying this is going to be a friendly contest and so on. And one of the things Shashi Tharoor has been saying in all his media interviews is that, you know, he has spoken with all the three Gandhis, right? Like Sonia Gandhi, Rahul Gandhi and Priyanka Gandhi. And they've all said that the Gandhi family would remain neutral in this exercise, right? And he was kind of satisfied with that. He has a lot of support from grassroots Congress workers and therefore he's contesting and he has a vision to change the party and so on, right? But what happened on the last day is quite dramatic, I think. So there is no official confirmation, of course, but all sorts of media reports are suggesting that Malikarjun Kharge is now the preferred candidate of the establishment in the Congress, i.e. the Gandhi family. And therefore, Digvijay Singh also sort of stepped aside and was one of the nominees of Mr. Kharge, who was the uh, Rajya Sabha leader of opposition till yesterday. He has stepped down now to, you know, contest this election. And it seems he has the blessing of the Gandhi's for this, which means that it is quite possible that he will win this quite handsomely. Mr. Tharoor has been saying that if you want some major changes to happen in the Congress party, then vote for him. Otherwise, like basically, Mr. Kharge is the candidate of the status quo. Now, I think about 9,000 plus Congress members at the state level, right, will be the electors. It actually goes down to an election uh, later this month. Mr. Kharge wins. He will be like the seven, uh, second Congress president from Karnataka and the second Dalit leader to become uh, Congress president after Jagjeevan Ram. Uh, Mr. Kharge has had an interesting political career, right? He was twice in the running to be the Karnataka CM, but he ultimately did not get the CM post in his career. He's 80 years old. He's a very senior Congress leader, supposed to be a uh, Gandhi family loyalist and so on. So it will be interesting if after all this, they go back to someone who is basically going to, you know, not do much in terms of major changes. Perhaps there will be a sort of symbolism associated with having a Dalit leader as a president, uh, which could have some political upside, but that remains to be seen.
but yeah i think after all this probably mr tharur will have some things to complain if if at all in private if it turns out that you know it is mr kharge who wins it very easily because he got the nod from the gandhi family yeah but uh, where are all the young people in congress though i mean uh, you know mr so kharge is 80 tharur is a youth uh, leader at at 66 <laughs> man so come on <laughs> yeah Mr Tharoor is 66 uh, Ashok Gelot is uh, I think 71 Digvijay Singh is 75 etc yeah yeah right quite in contrast to the the bjp right i think mr amit shah is in the is around 50 late 50s i suppose right similarly uh, yogi adityanath is uh, early 50s yeah so anyway that is interesting so, but a non gandhi fadnavis and himanta biswas sarva yeah yeah exactly from all, all 1970 or 71 So all are about fifty yeah. fifty one. So yeah, got like three. Exactly. So Fadnavis is deputy CM, but you got like three CMs or deputy CMs of big states. So they're all kind of in that zone. Yeah. But a non-Gandhi uh, competing for the Congress president itself is, uh, I think, it's a some kind of a positive change. Uh, one can say, right? So all right, moving on uh, to some international news. India has abstained from the UNSC resolution condemning Russia. The UN Security Council resolution was introduced by the United States and Albania condemning Moscow's proclaimed annexation of parts of Ukraine. The resolution failed to get adopted as Russia, as expected, vetoed it. It was supported by ten of the fifteen members of the council: China, Gabon. and brazil were the other countries that abstained india's permanent representative to the un um, to the un ambassador ruchira kamboj said that india was deeply disturbed by the recent developments in ukraine and new delhi has always advocated that you can never arrive at these solutions at the cost of human lives need of this is again a pretty bold move by india right not uh, buckling so, to the pressure from the west so i think see a lot of the western people so first was when russia first attacked ukraine that time also india did abstain but then after that at the shanghai cooperation organization seo in uzbekistan there modi made a case for peace he asked putin in his uh, public statement he said that uh, give peace a chance and like look for a negotiated settlement right so what he said is india stands for peace three is you look at this whole un security charter uh, un security council russia has a veto so no matter even if 14 countries are against russia uh, russia has a veto so that would have been vetoed anyways here what india has kind of signaled in all of these things india does not have an ideology where it's going to stick oh that i am with the west india has its own independence its own thought and india has permanent interests so india's interest is to have energy security right now what is happening is india that cannot afford to alienate russia because europe has put sanctions on russian oil and gas which has flow uh, actually moved more to india and china who are buying oil and gas from middle east so that qatari natural gas lng and uh, uae and saudi crude oil is flowing towards europe this has higher logistics cost higher insurance cost to the whole system but yet the disruption isn't as bad right so what india has its primary concern is its energy security india does not have a horse in the race between russia and ukraine you, russia has annexed four states or oblasts as they call them in uh, russia and ukraine so luhansk donetsk zaporizhia and kherson so now what has happened this i would say like is a uh, it's a very difficult situation for an outsider to know because it is close parallel to indians i would say is like the tamil speaking population in sri lanka and they were ill treated so now 
hypothetically, if say India had gone and uh, annexed Tamil part of uh, Sri Lanka, which is LTT dominated, India hasn't done it. India hasn't done it, but I'm saying close parallel is something of that sort, where the sympathies of the people are also towards more towards one side than the other. So the referendum, a lot of people are saying it's bogus. But what was true prior to this was that uh, you had some sort of tensions between the Russian speakers and the Ukrainian speakers. So people are ethnically Russian. A lot of those Russian ethnic people uh, with Ukrainian passports had also applied for Russian citizenship, right? So there is a chunk which wants to be a part of Russia. I don't know whether it's a majority or no, etc. Right. So this is a delicate situation between those two countries. And how it is going to be solved, we don't really know. My gut feel is probably it. we reach some sort of a ceasefire like North Korea, South Korea, or like the Turkish Cyprus and the Greek Cyprus. So we will see some sort of a stalemate or like what is between Taiwan and China, right? So we might have that. The second thing is, after this annexation, what this does is, earlier, Russia said that it was liberating, so it was attacking Ukraine as an offense and liberating these provinces from Ukrainian power and they called it denazification. But it's not against the Jews, it's against like ethnic Russians here and uh, who are being ill-treated in his view. But now he says that these are part of Russia, like Crimea, which was annexed in 2014. So any attack on these parts would constitute an attack on Russia itself, which allows as per its nuclear doctrine to respond by nuclear weapons, right? So earlier only if Ukraine attacked the earlier part of Russia, erstwhile Russia, within Russian borders, uh, then Russia, otherwise it has a no offense policy, right? Only for defense. But now they say that this is part of Russia. So now they can use it. So that is one thing. Second thing, what Russia or Putin, he gave out a speech. Now here he is attacking the West and the ideology of the West. He is saying that the West has kind of kept these quasi uh, allies, whom they call allies, but actually are like protectorates or in fact colonies. So he calls actually Japan and Germany as colonies of the West. And he says that Ukraine is also becoming one. And if like, say Ukraine was about to join NATO or was talking about joining in NATO, and he compared this with the colonization of India and Africa or the opium trade in China, where the whole country was hooked on to drugs and they went from having a trade surplus versus Britain to having a massive trade deficit. So here what he said is that Russia is just protecting its own territory, its own citizens. And he has made like a big swipe now it depends on what media you read like british media is calling it an angry taxi driver's rant against the west also unlike other things like issues about like the multiple genders or like against like uh, lgbtq etc but uh, be mindful that russia is not talking to the west he's not trying to convince the west about his thing his speech is directed to his own russian citizen and he is convincing the capture or annexation of these parts of Ukraine to the Russian citizens where he's actually asked for 300,000 or 3 lakh reservists to join the army. So they would probably provide the rear end support or for the front to kind of fortify and annex these four provinces in Russia, right? Again, Ukraine, there are like varying things where Ukraine is also making some offensive gains and there is a little bit of exchange of territory. It's not going smoothly in any one person's way. All media right now is biased and they're viewing it from their lens. So it's very difficult to know what is actually the truth. But this is what Putin has said, right? So he has annexed some part of Ukraine, four provinces. He's trying to justify his actions to 
Russian citizens that this is a thing which he wants domestic support for it. And with this domestic support, he can get more people, uh, more conscripts coming in. So also Russia is facing a lot of sanctions. So the local citizens would have a little more difficulty, some imported goods or some hardship. So he's trying to justify that part. India is trying to be neutral and protecting India's own interests. That India is more bothered about its own energy security uh, rather than whether Ukraine joins the NATO or whether Russia should attack Ukraine or Crimea should be whichever part of it. So India is being more balanced towards its own interests. And see, China has done the same, right? So China is protecting its own interests. And uh, India also has like a lot of dependency on Russia for military arms and energy. So you have to walk on a tightrope and uh, you've done what is best for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very, very interesting speech where uh, he kind of, you know, called the Western powers as being satanic, right? And hailed the traditional Russian values and everything. And he kind of made it seem like it was larger than just a border conflict, right? Kind of a clash of civilization, clash of values uh, as such. There's a guy called Konstantin Kissin who runs Trigonometry. Uh, and he had put out a, a, a really good thread on this. Well, it's it's gone viral. It's got a about 40,000 plus uh, retweets. Do check it out. He explains uh, parts of the speech and it's really interesting. What I found really interesting was friends to 1857, the opium trade and whatnot. So truly global in that sense. Yeah. Moving on, uh, the central government has banned the Popular Front of India or the PFI under Section 3 of the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act 1967 for a period of five years. During the September 23rd Hartal, its activists had allegedly engaged in widespread violence resulting in damage to buses, public property, and attacks on general public. PFI is an Indian Muslim political organization that engages in a radical and exclusivist style of Muslim minority politics. Abhishek, I think, you know, a lot of us would feel that this uh, was long due, right? Yeah, I mean, so PFI is like an organization that has been around since the last decade, but its roots are basically from the erstwhile uh, Simi, right? Which was an organization formed in the 70s and then eventually was banned by the Indian government in 2001 initially, then it was challenged in the courts briefly, the bans were withdrawn in 2008, and then finally the ban was upheld in 2008. This Simi obviously has a sort of storied history with, you know, events after Babri Mosque. Uh, incident, right? So there were bomb blasts all over India. We all know those stories. But Simi basically, I would say, sort of splintered into two parts, right? So the really radical terror elements initially formed the Indian Mujahideen, right? So we know the sort of domestic terror activities that India faced, let's say, between 2005-06 to up to 2012-13-14, right? So there was obviously the Indian Mujahideen that came out of it, and then you have PFI, right? Uh, so interestingly, uh, PFI is basically formed out of the, uh, let's say, the merger of various uh, different Muslim groups from various states, right? Starting off with uh, Kerala and Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, but they've also sort of taken under it umbrella groups from all over the country. And they also have an official political arm called SDPI, right? We all know that there has been a spate of violence in Kerala and parts of Karnataka, especially the coastal belt, right? Where PFI has clashed repeatedly not just with RSS and other Hindu organizations, but even CPIM, right? And also has caused a lot of concerns for the, let's say, the Christian community in Kerala, right? Uh, I think there is this famous or infamous case of the chopping of the hands of a professor in Kerala, right? Professor T.J. Joseph. And obviously there are like 
many many cases of murders and rioting against pfi members as well as you know possession of illegal arms and so on so yeah i think pfi's hands were also sort of supposed to be in the major sort of uh, anti ca protests that happened uh, throughout the country and so yeah it, i mean it's a pretty uh, radical organization these organizations like the pfi have sort of learned some lessons from the simi ban and incident right so you will Uh, not find the mention of uh, the word muslim or islamic in any of these organizations names right so quote and quote they all profess to be secular and socialist and democratic organizations but i mean ultimately the facade can only go so long i i just hope that the nia and the police authorities have uh, done a sort of good and comprehensive job in you know collection of the evidence because obviously this will uh, get challenged in the courts right and it is important you know that this ban is sustained and for that you will need good strong uh, evidence collection by the security agencies when it comes to the reaction of various political parties there was not much support for the pfi even from any of the opposition parties but obviously people like uh, rjd and others like they would just go on and taunt that okay pfi band is great now ban rss and bajrangdal and all that right so that is the sort of quick easy counter by the opposition but none of them were like stridently in defense of the pfi i think the maximum the person who went was ovesi who said that while i uh, totally oppose pfi and its ideology but i can't support this sort of draconian ban in totality something like that but even he did not really make a defense for the pfi because i think even these organizations know that the pfi causes a lot of damage to the so called secular parties by a uh, making things communally charged in the areas where they are sort of operating at scale which kind of benefits uh, the bjp but they also sort of take away votes from the so called secular parties via their own political arm stpi so yeah i don't think any of i mean the pfi has too many fans outside its uh, domain so there is a very interesting article in the print uh, that has come out i think today or whatever yesterday by praveen swami uh, i would sort of recommend everyone to I check that out i almost forgotten about praveen swami actually yeah yeah so he is in the print these days he makes nice small videos and uh, obviously he writes for the print now uh, but he makes a good point right he traces the whole jihadist elements of the simi and indian mujahideen pfi etc but he also says that basically it's like very difficult to sort of control these kind of organizations because inevitably what happens is that there will be some sort of excesses also as part of these investigations right i mean we know there were few cases where as part of let's say the crackdown on simi some sort of innocent folks were also sort of in jail languishing for many years and then then they come out as sort of very bitter opponents of the indian state and all that and basically their communities also get caught up in it and so it's like a vicious cycle right and that's why it's uh, very important that the security agencies build a very watertight case this time so that the ban is sustained right yeah for sure and uh, i think pfi sdp pfi etc i mean these are long due banning in in my estimation you know i mean we have experienced this in bangalore right abhishek i mean we have seen yeah. uh, the kind of uh, 
like street violence that happens in the name of uh, these you know uh, so called secular organizations uh, as such and and so yeah i mean this is a good move and i i i completely understand that you know it's going to be like a hydra and these folks are going to morph into like you know many other organizations and what not yeah but but it's a it's a it's a question of making it difficult for them right and i think it's it's true i mean you should should freeze the accounts or should uh, definitely punish the guilty uh, people especially those who are calling for street violence and so on right so so it's it's definitely a good move in that sense all right moving on to some exciting news so we had the formal launch of the 5g services prime minister narendra modi on saturday inaugurated the 6th India Mobile Congress at Pragati Maidan in Delhi and launched 5G services. Jio and Airtel announced the launch of their 5G services in a handful of cities for now, with further expansion planned planned for later uh, and full coverage by around 2024. Cities like Delhi, Mumbai, Kolkata, Bangalore, Chennai, Hyderabad, and Gurgaon will be the first to get 5G. It is believed that the rollout of 5G will accelerate the adoption of cloud gaming, AR, VR technology, Internet of Things, and several other use cases. Near of this is pretty exciting, right? I mean, we've spoken earlier about the potential for 5G in India. It's it's great to see this uh, rollout. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, like, one is India is kind of like if you see the lags uh, between rest of the world and India, right? Uh, these are compressing quite a bit. Uh, two is that both the companies which are launching uh, these services. Are Indian companies, right? So earlier when we had first rollout of mobile phones, etc., uh, you had uh, the first mobile. Fo- the companies were uh, Hutchins and Vampova, right? Hutch and Orange. So those are the foreign companies getting in. So like this is like another positive. And then like lastly, we've already seen. So India internet users went from like uh, 25 crores in 2014 to like 85 crores right now. So one is like better penetration, and two is like more reliable things, right? Also. Uh, rise in e-commerce via the ONDC platforms. So all of these things, right? Uh, this is setting up the pipes for a much uh, bigger, brighter future. All this will also lead to like a lot of indigenization and like technology jobs for telecom equipment. And uh, so I think the innovations, all that uh, which can come out of it, are immense. Especially in the Internet of Things, IoT, right? Like a much more accurate GPS, a lot more. feedback from uh, systems smart grids smart refrigerator smart tvs which tell back that what are you watching or what point do you stop etc but so the collection of data all that becomes a lot better and uh, as i said the most heartening thing i felt was the companies which have started are indian companies first right so that's also a good thing you know ahead of every technology curve right i mean uh, it's it's uh, we often wonder you know what more can happen i think you know we already feel like we've peaked right but you know if you look at the number of devices there's been a huge proliferation of devices the amount of data that we're consuming the, da- the data that we're generating every day is is humongous right and having that sort of processing power uh, being able to like you know transmit these packets of you know information uh, cheaper faster is is definitely going to flatten access right i mean it's going to make it a lot more interesting for uh, a lot of the use cases as well whether it's healthcare or manufacturing or what not uh, you know we spoke about ar vr ar vr has been one of those things transformative technology for almost 20 years it hasn't yet arrived right i mean for those of us who remember the magic leap project or even oculus for example we would have kind of expected that uh, uh, this would have been front and center right now but i think you know i mean you just heard news of uh, facebook for example investing 70 billion dollars uh, right in in meta uh, in the in the whole metaverse project and everything so 
more of this stuff is going to get really relevant uh, in our lives uh, sooner than we think it is so i could think of like you know maybe surgeries and what not being performed remotely i could think of like uh, a lot of remote manufacturing and so you know having that basic in internet infrastructure is akin to having the roadways and the highways and the logistics uh, uh, in in the physical world right i mean uh, is is absolutely akin to that so i think i'm really excited and and to your point nirav you know the fact that we have indian companies right i mean is is a huge thing right i mean if you remember previous uh, bidders of the spectrum right i mean it could it ranged from you know etisalat to uh, you know some of the norwegian swedish middle eastern firms as well right i mean it's crazy so yeah i mean this is this is very positive news i would say like adding one more application like like tesla does like remote software upgrades for its cars right that's enabled because of like 5g so actually equipment which gives like real time feedback that original uh, equipment manufacturer or like cars so that that kind of data collection or like remote patches etc so it's just mind boggling the possibilities are tremendous we don't know yeah. how efficiently or how well we'll be able to use it but it's a big leap i don't think it's a step it's a big leap ahead yeah no for sure i mean i think you know all of those possibilities that got opened up post covid with remote i think we are going to see an order of magnitude more you know when we have some of these things in reality ar vr and so on right so yeah exciting times ahead well we just wanted to run you through a few updates on the economy front there was some flattering news uh, michael spence who is a nobel laureate and professor of economics uh, at uh, economics emeritus at stanford university uh, had come out with a statement that you know the global economy is undergoing a regime change today and india is the outstanding performer for now right which is pretty strong words and uh, in the same uh, you know in the same space uh, span of a few days rbi had increased uh, rates by 50 basis points which is like the fourth hike in five months as well so nirav what do you make of these things yeah so see one thing is india has like come out of covid totally right all the uh, issues whatever it had plagued it one is globally you're seeing inflation is a big problem there are a lot of supply chain constraints the west had given like a huge fiscal stimulus a huge monetary stimulus so there's a lot of demand which is raising the price of a lot of goods and services so everywhere you've got to increase the cost of borrowing so in uk us and in europe you're seeing hikes in steps of 0.75% right every meeting india because already you are at a higher level of rates so we've gone repo rate has gone from 4 to 440 then 440 to like now it's finally 590 so you have three hikes of half a percentage point each right so so india is also catching up uh, that is a problem my favorite by far the most realistic indicator is gst collections per month uh, we get it uh, 30th of each month uh, this time again it was 1.47 lakh crores so which tells you see pre pandemic right 1 lakh crore used to be a good number then in during the pandemic it dipped a bit etc but then it became 1 lakh 20 to 25000 crores now we are at 1 lakh 47000 crores so this tells you like where are nominal gdp of the formal economy is growing so because india is also facing a bit of inflation so yes some of the numbers are also due to uh, inflated price of goods on which you pay the tax but the tax is actual cash paid right to the government and uh, the second thing is the fiscal year starts from 1st april to 31st of march so end of september they announce how much are they going to borrow in the next half of the calendar year that also they reduced it by a small amount because they're saying that oh we are having so much revenue we need to borrow a little bit less this is very rare actually so which tells you that whatever the budgeted numbers were we are kind of going along the budgeted numbers 
this tax collection is a bit higher. Detractors of the government will say yes, that the informal sector suffered a lot due to COVID and it's not come back up that much. I agree to it. That is a fact. Uh, there are issues where monsoons, uh, like there's some spatial distribution difference, some places there's a lower rice output, etc. So yes, but those are not collect. They don't pay any tax, right? Agriculture is not is exempt from GST. So all the other parts of the economy are doing quite well. And uh, this number cannot be fake. It's not a survey. RBI in its policy meeting also gave projections for the rest of the year. So they believe that the whole uh, GDP for the whole financial year uh, will be 7%. Earlier, the projection was 7.2. But this is also very high compared to you look at the rest of the world. So I think basically, as like Michael Spence says, right, like India has done a reasonable job gotten out of COVID. The West is struggling with the problem of high inflation. China is suffering from zero COVID and uh, struggles to open up. So India, while it's not doing as great as we'd like it to do, relatively it's doing a lot better. So like that's all what you can say. Again, I think it's not to be too excited about one particular data point or any one thing. It's like a slow and steady journey that you keep pushing at it and keep going and keep improving from where you are to where you want to be. So yeah, uh, so, in that sense, Neera, I had a like a thought process in which like our question in which I wanted your views. So so you see every major currency is you know weakening against the dollar considerably, right? Yeah. You take uh, whether the top economies uh, like or like the euro, or you take let's say um, you know even our neighbors, right? How their uh, currencies have sort of dramatically weakened against the dollar so we are also let's say at all-time lows but yeah. our decline has been kind of slow much slow now the rbi has been sort of doing some sort of uh, buying right to protect yes now my question is we have seen our reserve decline let's say a little bit right over the last yeah. few months maybe we are in the mid 500s now right in yeah, terms yeah. of our reserves i think the other day there was a news that the uk itself was at just having two months of coverage right in terms yeah. of the reserves they had so how do you see this playing out do you think even the bond rate that we have in terms of our currency one is okay maybe we went a bit too so india was worried about inflation uh, we have inflation being imported quite a lot due to higher energy crude prices, etc. That is why RBI intervened. What they said is, you don't buy an umbrella. You buy an umbrella only so that you can use it during the rains, right? So uh, this is what they said in the previous RBI meeting when they were told. So I think reserves went from, I think high was 642 billion sometime uh, yeah, last, yeah. last year in November. Yeah. Uh, as of like uh, September, it was. Uh, 537 billion. Yes. So we've used that a lot. So few other data points, what do you like look at is India has a good straight deficit of about uh, 25 to 30 billion dollars a month. So we import more goods than we export. Some of it is also our exports have fallen off due to a weaker goods demand in the West. So Europe is clearly struggling. Uh, US also, uh, their goods demand is slowing but the services is still strong. So that is why even Japan and Korea have gone from trade surplus to trade deficit because of this one reason. Uh, thing number two is because of the Ukraine conflict, oil prices went up a bit, which they've come back now. Then thing number three is India has a good services export surplus. So all your TCS, Infosys, etc. So that is 10 billion a month. We have a surplus. So 25 minus 10, 15 is a shortfall, which usually foreigners would buy our equities and debt, which they've kind of stopped buying or like. So that is one reason why Indian currency is also weakened. 
but a bit of that is to be expected. I think this gradual depreciation will happen, uh, which will allow our exports to pick up a bit. And uh, only I think if and when US really does uh, slow down or actually go into like a proper recession, uh, would this kind of affect a bit that oil prices come down and things like that. In the meanwhile, I think, as I said, India has done a reasonably good job. Could it be a lot better? Yes. But it could also be a lot worse, right? So, and nobody really has like the perfect solution, perfect answers. So I think in that sense, India has been quite prudent, quite sensible. India does not have a lot of external debt. A lot of the companies, actually India had the whole big twin balance sheet problem, excessively levered corporates, excessively levered banks with high NPAs, right after the financial. Yeah, I think this, this is a good solved, point right? to make, right? In the sense that our balance banks, balance sheets have never been better. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so we've cleaned up quite a bit. We are a lot more resilient to all these shocks. Does that mean the rupee will weaken further? I think it will, right? Yes, that will happen. I think it's nothing which kind of creates a huge shock and panic, right? So I think uh, that's what it is. I think RBI has used probably a bit too much firepower, right? Uh, so maybe they'll slow down a bit, but who knows? We'll, only time will say. And uh, maybe if FDI picks up a lot and you're seeing a lot of announcements, but actual cash flows aren't picking up yet. If FDI picks up a lot, then I think it should be a good thing for India, right? So that's what it is. The other point I just wanted your views on was like, so there are a lot of commentators making very dire predictions for Europe now with, let's say, the Nord Stream pipeline, which is sort of done yeah. now. They are, you know, saying it's a very bleak outlook for Europe with obviously energy crisis, manufacturing slowdown to come in Europe. Therefore, European economy is weakening, therefore import for Europe declining, which will hit exporting countries. So yeah. which economies do you think will suffer if European economy uh, sort of tanks a bit yeah. next year? So I think the big ones are like uh, China, Korea, Taiwan, Japan. Right. So see, that's why uh, Korea and Japan have moved from trade surplus countries to trade deficit countries. And you would expect these countries, their currencies are doing much worse than India yeah. Uh, yeah. in terms of depreciation year to date. So that's a very surprising thing. So a lot of it is due to destruction of demand in Europe, right? So uh, India is not that big an exporter, but I any I'm never in for like very dire predictions anywhere. I think the worlds uh, and humans always adapt. We find other ways. Maybe I think Europe will restart using coal, go for more nuclear. Uh, things will rebalance. Already the oil trade has rebalanced, right? More marginally more Middle Eastern oil flows to Europe and Russian oil flows to India and China, right? It's like kind of like you just crisscross paths. So that is there. And uh, I think people will adapt. Maybe some of the industries, if you have to make fertilizers in Europe and export to the US, and if you're importing US natural gas to make it so like DASF does something of that sort. So instead of Russia, now they'll have to import natural gas from US and then export it back to US. Maybe DASF can set up factories in uh, US. Uh, already German automakers are expanding their plants, like Volkswagen and like I think BMW are expanding their plants in the US to produce for the US, right? Or in Mexico. So maybe we see some sort of those rebalancing things. So yeah, I don't think it's like super dire. Hopefully things kind of sort themselves out. But yeah, India, because it exports less to Europe, does not have an FTA with Europe. Uh, India is a little bit better off. Bangladesh actually exports a lot. Compared to the US, they export a lot more to EU. So maybe Bangladesh gets hit on the lower end textiles if 
demand for like a few consumer goods drops yeah one of the people that i've really enjoyed following in recent times is uh, professor kv subramanian uh, yeah. who's a former chief economic advisor and he is not holding back right i mean uh, you can see it in his threads and everything but his ability to sort of dissect uh, things and also explain in a a very lucid manner some of these macro things right i mean is uh, is phenomenal actually so uh, definitely check him out on twitter um all right so that's the end of the bharatvarta weekly for this time uh, we have a couple of interesting episodes coming up uh, obviously there are you know major changes in the uk at this point of time uh, with the queen's passing we have a, uh, you know they have a new uh, monarch uh, king charles who's taken uh, you know who's taken the throne uh, then a new uh, prime minister as well uh, liz truss and some you know trouble on the economy front as well as uh, in terms of uh, society as well right i mean with the hindu muslim riots in uh, leicester and what not uh, so i discussed all of this and more with sunil sharma uh, who is uh, from the conservative friends of the commonwealth uh, wide ranging discussion on all of these issues uh, do check it out and more importantly we also spoke about how it matters from an indian perspective right so so that one we're going to put out perhaps on tuesday or wednesday of this week also another uh, interesting episode is with hindol sengupta who's an author uh he has his new book out sing dance and pray based on uh, uh, you know uh, shrila prabhupada uh, the founder of iskon and iskon you know with over million plus uh, followers uh, in fact i mean have uh, any of you watched the documentary on him i mean it's it's pretty interesting actually very very interesting um you know how he went to new york in the late 60s uh and started this movement uh that has gathered over a million followers at this point of time uh so yeah very very interesting episodes coming up uh, next week uh do stay tuned to us uh, you know uh, follow us on social media twitter facebook wherever else uh and uh, you know like share all of our subs- uh, like share and subscribe uh man you know 110 weeklies and i still screw up the last part of whatever i have to say right i mean uh but anyway you get the point share all of our uh, content on social media uh and from abhishek neeram and myself uh, thank you so much for keeping us company this week we'll see you soon next week Stay safe, take care, and Jai Hind.